Have you heard the message? It's an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. All of season one is available now, so check it out, listen, find out why a 70-year-old alien recording seems to be killing people. Search for The Message on iTunes. This episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Squarespace. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter offer code WEEDS at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. The following podcast contains explicit language. Wet bread and salt. I like that. Hi, welcome to the latest episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Sarah and Ezra are both not available this week, so I'm joined by two super exciting, super special guests, two great colleagues of mine from Vox.com, Brad Plumer and Julie Belouz. Uh, hi, guys. Hi. Hey. Thanks for taking the time to help me out with this show. We didn't want to skip another episode after we took a week off for Thanksgiving. You know, we know people out there are clamoring, clamoring for more weeds, so we had to scare up some some extra people, and it's it's going to be great. We may get even wackier, even dorkier than usual. But we're going to delve into some climate change stuff later. But I, I really did want to kick things off with a absolutely fantastic evergreen topic that Julia has written about recently, which is the question of dietary fat. You know, and this was sort of brought home for me recently. The pediatrician had been giving uh, my wife and my some advice on things, you know, sort of early starter solid foods that would be good to feed to the baby. And I asked about yogurt. And they said, yeah, you know, yogurt's great, but you should get whole milk yogurt, not low-fat yogurt. And so I went to the store, and it's actually surprisingly hard to find. Um, Everybody wants to have the sort of the reduced-fat yogurts. And I assume that's because they are trying to be healthy. I mean, certainly it sounds healthy, right? Being fat is, is unhealthy, so eating fat sounds pretty unhealthy, but I gather it's considerably more complicated than that. It is considerably more complicated, and I think all of us are about the same age. We live through this low-fat craze where I remember telling my mom, like, don't put too much oil when you're cooking chicken or you know, everyone remembers snack wells, those cookies that taste like cardboard that I think are still around. And yet when you look at the scientific evidence for a very long time, researchers knew that it was a lot more complicated than that. So different types of fat, different fatty acids have different effects on the body, and some are more beneficial than others. So the basic nuance of fat is that there's actually different kinds of fats, and research and science tells us different things about them. What was really interesting is that when you look back over time, you see the message that unsaturated fat is better for you than saturated fat was actually incredibly consistent for, you know, about since the 1950s. And but can yet, you, can you like, just, like, help build that? Like, like, what are the kinds of fat, and like, so, broadly speaking, and, and where do we tend to find them? Yeah, so there are three main types of fat. They're called fatty acids, and trans fat, saturated fat, unsaturated fat. So unsaturated fat is typically found in oil and fish, saturated fat, butter and meat. Um, trans fats are the, the ones that help people worry about In the last 10 years, the FDA has been working to phase them out of the food supply, but they were typically found in frozen pizzas, cookies, margarine. Margarine is a big one. So it tends to be artificially created food products have these trans fats. Yeah, and they increase shelf life, and they're cheaper than um, fats derived from animals or plants, so they were really popular. And we knew for a long time, actually, that they were really bad for health, but it took, again, because of the lobbying and 
influence of the food industry. It took a long time to phase them out of the food supply and actually apply the science. And is there any kind of like rule of thumb that would make it easy to see what kind of a fat am I dealing with? I mean, if you, it's something I'm cooking for myself at home, does that mean there's probably no trans fats in it or not significant quantities? That's right. Yep. Some meats do have small amounts of trans fats, but those aren't really the ones that public health and doctors worry about. The ones that people worry about are the artificial created ones that were typically used in processed food. But as a rule of thumb, unsaturated fat are typically soft or liquid at room temperature. Saturated fat, typically something that's hard, like butter. Right, so like butter and the bits of fat in my meat that are solid at room temperature. That's right, yeah. That's because they're saturated fats. That's it. And the liquids, like bottles that I can pour on something, and we usually call it oil, and that's more unsaturated fats. Yep, that's right. So we in the media and in the way this science has been applied to guidelines, it's kind of made this simple message incredibly complex and confusing, but you want to try to replace saturated fats in the diet butter red meat with unsaturated fish, vegetable oils, nuts, as much as you can, basically. So part of how we got into the the sort of the, the fat conversation, it sounded like from, from the piece, was a way to kind of hide the ball on the idea that you should eat less meat, right? Yeah, I think originally what they had found was unsaturated fats, pretty good for you, as best we can tell. They didn't really know about trans fats in the 50s. And saturated fat was the big question. So that was in red meat. It was in butter. It seemed to be pretty bad. It's, as I understand, it's just really hard to study individual macronutrients. Like, you can't just give a random selection of people fat because people don't eat fat. They eat foods. Right. You can can study foods. You can't really experiment with the molecules that the foods are made out of. right? Right. So they had a lot of questions about saturated fat. And the basic message was maybe we should eat less of this. The the, government took that. Yeah, the science was quite consistent for a long time on the fact that unsaturated fat is better for health than saturated fat. Right. Full stop. And that science was really consistent. But, yeah, the government took that and kind of dumbed it down to this message that that they thought that people wouldn't understand. And, as you know, it's kind of difficult to talk about different fatty acids and the effect they have on health, that people wouldn't understand that. So they dumbed it down to eat less fat. And then also the people who issue the guidelines are the USDA, and they have the mandate of telling Americans what to eat, but also of protecting the agricultural industry. So um, no one ever wanted to say eat less meat. The basic conclusion is that it's it's easier to give clear guidance around actual foods rather than molecular components of foods. And to say that the typical American, if they ate less meat and substituted for that some fruits and vegetables, would get healthier. Absolutely. But that's not a message that works well with the political process because the USDA has sort of agricultural producers as one of its main constituencies. So they want to bore down into it and say, no, you don't need to avoid meat. There's some particular aspect of meat. Maybe it has too much saturated fat in it, so avoid saturated fat, and then we can get all our pork breeders to make these leaner strains of pork. But it's not really clear that anyone understands what that message means or can do anything useful with it. Absolutely. And no one wants to say eat less of anything. So we have all these euphemisms like, you know, eat two to three servings or eat X in moderation. 
Marion Nessel, in her book Food Politics, she does an excellent job of decoding the language and the dietary guidelines and how, yeah, the, the people who write them aren't actually allowed to say a lot of the things that we know for health. And then you can contrast that to a place like Brazil, where they've done this incredible job of really uh, probably learning from a lot of the lessons that we've learned here in the U.S. of just making these incredibly simple guidelines like eat lots of fruits and vegetables, don't eat a lot of meat, sit down with your family and cook, like these very practical, holistic approach to telling people what to eat. Um, and is that because Brazil's economic production of food is different? If the United States was more of a bonanza of vegetable growing and, and less of cow and soy feed Well, rearing? they have a lot of cows in Brazil. Do they? Yeah. I don't actually know anything about Brazil. That's why they cut down all the rainforests. Okay. I think a lot of, a lot of the countries that developed after us in the U.S. and Canada, they kind of learned a lot of, like, so Brazil has this incredibly advanced health system and electronic health records in, in a way that we just don't have here, and I think it might be, um, but yeah. it, maybe they don't have the lobbying power that we kind of see in Washington here that has such a perverting influence over how science is used. It seems like it mm. makes an important difference that there's no fat lobby, so there's no one saying, oh, if you say eat less fat, no one's going to lobby against it's that, key, but there's yeah. a meat lobby, there's a fruits and vegetables lobby. Although, why yeah. isn't the fruits and vegetables lobby more powerful? That's a good question. My understanding is that the vegetable growing in the United States is pretty um, geographically concentrated, right? So, like, California yeah. produces a lot of vegetables. So, all the, each, like, different vegetable has two senators as its constituents, whereas corn is spread out across this vast, empty you know, uh, wilderness a lot. In, yeah. the, in the middle of the United States, uh, and they can sort of come and do that. But the other thing about the fat, I mean, it goes back to my, my yogurt problem, right, is that it's, I guess, relatively easy for dairy producers to just kind of, like, defat some stuff and mm. comply with those sorts of guidelines if that's what people want to do, and you can always throw more sugar in to make things tasty. Yeah, that was one of the big lessons of this. They, they noticed that when they told people to eat less fat, even though the message should have been reduce your intake of saturated fat, avoid meat, they just told people, you, we all remember this growing up, like don't eat fat, low fat craze. And they ended up replacing a lot of the fat in foods with sugar to make things taste good. This is one of the contributors to the rise of obesity. And because sugar is so, even worse. Well, so that was the interesting thing. So when we were obsessing over what types of fat to eat and how much fat to eat, people were replacing the fat with sugar. And sugar now, when you look at what people replaced fat in their diet with, they've done studies on this, and sugar is just as bad for your health as saturated fat. Right, because what people want, I mean, you know, you have these lobbying dynamics, but also actual human beings want to eat stuff that's, like, awesome, and they, they don't want to eat sad vegetables. There's a really interesting book out this year called The Dorito Effect, and the author, Mark Schatzker, he talks about flavor as this missing component in a lot of the conversations about food and, yeah, this kind of overemphasis on different components of food instead of talking about what actually makes people eat food, and flavor is just a massive Obviously, you know, sometimes you have things where something is going like wrong in the government because, you know, the bureaucrats don't know what they're doing or, or people have, have outdated ideas. But it sounds like each time you have efforts to revise dietary guidelines in the United States, that there's a lot of politicking around it. And it's not that the people don't understand that there's a better approach to it. It's that delivering clear messages about the need to consume less of certain kinds of things just runs very contrary to certain kinds of political interests that are out there. Mm -hmm. And that, like what you saw, I mean, in, in New York with the trans fat ban, right, Michael Bloomberg just wanted to have a big 
political fight about this. He obviously knew that the restaurant industry was not going to be excited about this proposal, but he was okay with that and wanted to have a big fight over it. But that the typical American president does not want on any given afternoon to like have a big controversy with farm lobbies. And so you kind of have this process that's going on, but without someone saying, okay, I'm going to make one of my top five priorities for the year, clearer nutritional guidelines, you're just naturally going to wind up with, with some kind of muddle. Because if your livelihood, right, is raising cows and selling them to people, you're going to be very upset if the government comes out and is like, stop buying this guy's stuff. I would be kind of bummed out if the government said reading Vox is bad for your health or stop listening to this podcast. Like Only 300 milligrams per day. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, probably all this content is bad for you, right? I mean, you should be like talking to your family or, you know. Cooking dinner. Cooking dinner, right. I mean, but, you know, we don't we don't want that message out there. And, you know, I, I find that a, a little bit understandable at any rate. You mentioned Brazil, but do we have examples of countries that have an infrastructure in place and were able to pivot it in a real kind of way? Or is there sort of, you know, is the United States muddling through about as well as anyone else? Does Canada, where, where you're, you're Canadian, right? You have a very similar problem in Canada where, yeah, the, the kind of pressure from industry has completely perverted the science. So we have like a lot of recommendations about how much milk to eat or how much meat to eat that aren't based at all in science. So how much milk should I eat? Oh God, how much <laughs> milk should you eat? So I think that the basic thing, so I, I love Michael Pollan's haiku, eat food, not too much, mostly plants. Yeah. Even the, the debate about fat. So fat has double the amount of calories as protein and per unit as compared to protein and carbohydrates. So as long as you're not eating too many calories, you're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, again, it's pretty simple. For half a century, we've known that, and we've kind of overcomplicated it. And it's partly the media's fault. Right. When, yeah, in our study of fat, we looked at Time magazine over time, and you see everything from completely avoid fat to eat butter most recently. So which completely, again, like we've known butter, you shouldn't eat too much butter. Um, it's saturated, mostly saturated fat, so yeah. All right. Um, so I think we should take a take a break here, do a, a word from a sponsor, and then we're going to delve into the exciting climate change summit taking place in Paris. Today's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by The Message, an original science fiction podcast from Panoply and GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing... But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. So, 
So the big sort of news that you see, not necessarily going going viral on our Facebook page, but being covered by high-toned, prestigious media outlets who care about what matters in the world, is this big climate summit that is happening in Paris right now, and it is called COP21. I thought when I first heard about COP something or other, when they were doing it in Copenhagen, that was just called that because those are the first three letters of Copenhagen, although it turns out that's not even how you spell the city in Danish. So what what is it? What what does this mean? Why is it called that? What's going Cop on, Brad? COP21, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's Conference of Parties, and this is the 21st. Basically, it's UN speak for a meeting. They're meeting about climate change. They have all these fancy acronyms that reduce down to simple terms. They've been meeting for a long time, since the 1990s. 21 times? Uh, I believe this is the 21st, yeah. Every year they discuss different things, and they've taken a different approach to how to deal with climate change. And it's changed a lot over time. So in the beginning, they got together and said, hey, this is a problem. Let's do something about it. Later on during the 90s, they had, it was in Kyoto, so it was called the Kyoto Protocol, and they actually hashed out this master plan to save the world from climate change. And what it did was rich countries had to cut their emissions by a certain amount. Poorer countries like China, India, they were essentially given a pass for now. They decided, okay, it's not fair that we've been growing all this while using fossil fuels, and you haven't you guys just take a break, do what you need to do, we'll cut emissions. And, you know, at this conference, they banged out a fancy formula, and it didn't really work. Europe followed it, New Zealand followed it, no one else followed it. So this is, the the idea here is that climate change is a is a global issue, obviously. Yeah, that's why they've always met and so And so you need some kind of a worldwide solution. Yes. And you don't have a real enforceable international legal framework, but this is the closest that we have, is this regular set of UN-sponsored meetings at which countries come together and work out principles that they say they're going to follow, and to some extent, some of them do follow them. Once upon a time, they really did want an enforceable legal treaty. That was the idea behind the Kyoto Protocol. It would be legally binding. Countries would have to follow it. It was a little vague on penalties, but in theory, you could imagine there would be some sort of penalties for not following it, and it just doesn't work. The U.S. did not want to be part of a legally binding treaty, and so they didn't ratify it, and that was that. No one could make them do anything. China and India don't want to be part of a legally binding treaty, and you can't make them do it. Canada actually agreed to be part of a legally binding treaty. And then when they found they couldn't meet the targets, they just left. They were like, bye, see you guys. I mean, you can say that there's a legally binding treaty that you're part of, but then for it to really, really bind, you would need penalty mechanisms. And the sort of tighter you draw it, right, the harder it is to actually get countries to sign on. Yeah. And so over the years, they've evolved to the idea that the most important thing is to get something that the major players are willing to sign on to that makes some kind of progress rather than holding out for an idealized thing that's going to leave out. I mean, if you leave out the United States and China and India from your global yeah. emissions framework, you're not going to accomplish anything anyway. So what would the point be? Yeah. So that I think after 2009, the Copenhagen conference, that again, they tried to expand on Kyoto. They said, we'll get this hopefully legally binding treaty that includes China, includes India, includes poorer countries, and it was a disaster. They came up with some very weak 
agreement that didn't really do anything. So after that point, they really decided, let's take a different tack. Let's start with basically voluntary commitments from everyone. So we'll ask India, what do you think you can do about greenhouse gas emissions, given your situation, given technology, try to make it strong, I guess, but that's up to you. They asked that of the U.S., they asked that of China, Europe, and that's really where we are now. At this point, everyone has these voluntary commitments, and it's not legally binding. The targets aren't likely to be binding on those countries, but they're at least doing something. So it's a forum in which you can sort of build some sense that there is global momentum, right? There are many things that might make a country hesitant to reduce its carbon dioxide emissions. But one thing that you might really worry about is that, especially if you're a smaller country, right? I mean, if you're looking at Mexico, Mexico reducing carbon dioxide emissions on its own is totally unimportant to the global situation. And yet, if every medium-sized country does absolutely nothing, that's a big problem, right? So if you totally just let everyone go their own way. Things would just totally spiral out of control, right? And so you need to have something that creates at least a a political dynamic of like, yes, there is global cooperation. Yes, there is this progress being made. So politicians who favor some kind of action can say, look, this is important. We are marching in lockstep with the rest of the world. I mean, I, I don't know, Julie, if you you watched any of the uh, the debates in Canada during the, the last election season, but it was it was interesting to me. You know, the parties had some significant disagreements about climate change, even though, you know, Canada is a country that's not of the size where what they do one way or the other is going to, like, radically alter the, the nature of the global atmosphere, but something that a, a lot of, um, that both the, the liberals and, and the New Democrats seem to be leaning on was the idea that Harper had put Canada out of step with the rest of the world. And I guess Canadians want to be thought of as good global citizens. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so there's a sort of a, a psychological dynamic behind it. I think that's what they're hoping for with this COP21, this 21st mm-hmm. time trying to tackle climate change, is that they're not going to force anyone to make emissions reductions. The best they can do is get everyone on board, have this sense that people are cooperating. The UN will try to develop a few mechanisms that facilitate this. So they want to come up with a common way to verify and measure that everyone is doing what they say they're doing. They want to get people to continue coming back to the UN and updating their pledges. But I think that's the idea, is that it creates this momentum that businesses, when they're deciding whether to invest, that's in the back of their mind. There's this Paris agreement. The world is moving towards clean energy. It's moving towards climate change. And I think there's a real question about whether it'll work. Certainly at this point, the pledges that people have put forward are pretty flimsy. And if you look at the scale of what's needed to avoid serious climate change, they don't come anywhere close. So I, I think this is a really important point to sort of focus in on. And, and it relates to, you referred to the Copenhagen conference and, and its outcome as, as disastrous. And I remember that at a recent Democratic debate, Hillary Clinton referenced the Copenhagen conference as a success of yes. the Obama administrations and, and of Obama's foreign policy. And I feel like there's a big 
disagreement in perspective on this question between sort of people who focus on climate change and environmental issues, you know, as their one big mm-hmm. thing, and people who are more sort of generalist political observers, right? And the viewpoint that you hear more, I would say, from, from people like me, you know, liberalish people who are interested in climate change, and but interested in many things, is that there has been a lot of progress on climate change and that there's been a lot of progress in the United States and there's been a lot of progress internationally, that Copenhagen was an important step forward and that it happens because what we are doing essentially is what you normally do in assessing politics, which is you look at change relative to the baseline of what you had before. Yeah, incremental progress looks pretty good. Right, and so you say that the trajectory first of Europe and now of the United States and now of a bunch of other countries has been altered significantly Mm -hmm. from the trajectory of where they would have been if nobody had ever raised this whole issue of climate change. Yeah. But then you have people who are more more environmentally focused specifically and even more so people who come out of the science world rather than the politics Mm -hmm. world. And the baseline that they are measuring from is this, can we prevent 2% warming two degrees two two degree so that's like say okay well we have a scientific understanding of what would have to happen in order to achieve that goal and are we close to achieving that in technical geological scientific terms and their answer is no we aren't right that they keep having meetings that there keep being these sort of declarations made but that we're still on course for much 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 more emissions than would lead to that so there's a very sort of a a pessimistic dour outlook from people Mm -hmm. with that sort of that that climate science background and there's obviously validity to both of those perspectives. And I think it's important for people, you know, when they read about climate change or when they hear, oh, great stuff's been happening or we're failing miserably to understand like what those two baselines are. Yeah, both things can be true. And I think that's true of this, these climate talks that are going on relative to where we are before, they're making quite a bit of progress. Last year, for the first time, China announced a date for when its emissions would peak. It never done that before. It's not binding. There's nothing the U.S. can do to make sure that will happen. But for the first time, China said, we are going to have our emissions peak at a certain time. So that's progress. That's real incremental progress. I think on the not good enough side, what makes this issue a little different from a lot of other issues is that there's a bit of a deadline for doing things and there's a little bit of irreversibility. So if you look at healthcare. If you pass a bill that covers 50% of the uninsured, that's certainly not good enough if your goal is to cover all of the uninsured. But you can at least say, okay, maybe five years later, 10 years later, we'll get to 100% coverage. Right. It's not ideal, but you know maybe that's the best we could do. I think what a lot of people who have studied this for a long time say is if you pass a certain global warming threshold, there's no going back. You can't undo it. So half measures are better than nothing, but you're still failing your goal and you can't get that back. If you warm the planet enough that the West Antarctic ice sheet starts collapsing irreversibly, you can't do anything later that will 
change that. Yeah, but there, there's also a, a sort of question of human psychology. Right? Yeah. Where, so some people have the view, just in general in politics, that like a good way to motivate people to make big changes is to talk about how terribly off track they are right now. Yeah. And to say, God, this is fucking awful. You got to do way more. And other people, I think, have the view that, no, what you want to be is more like a happy cheerleader. Like, this is great, guys. We're, we're doing it. Keep on going. And, you know, I think if you've ever done anything in life, right, there's like... People take different approaches to parenting. People take different approaches to coaching sports teams. People take different approaches to management in the office. And so some of what's happening is just these different theories of how do you coach the world's population? Like, do yes. you want to be like the hard-ass coach who's really emphasizing how far we're falling short? Or you do you want to be like the friendly, cheery, supportive one who's like, we can do it, guys. Just keep on keep on going on. And I guess, you know, there's probably some some sense of what works better in, in different contexts, or, or maybe you need more. But, you know, the, it seems to me that a lot of people without explicitly saying, oh, hey, I have a disagreement with someone else about, like, social psychology, mm -hmm. that that's what, what drives some of this. There's really interesting parallels in global health with pandemic preparedness. So how to get countries to galvanize around this abstract next pandemic that's going to wipe us all out. And the scare tactics haven't really worked there either. The big problem is we, we have this international health regulation, which came out of SARS, and it was supposed to be this legally binding agreement where all countries agreed to, we're going to get ready for, we're going to increase our surveillance, we're going to have, like, strengthen our health systems, but then you have poor countries that don't have the money to do that, and the wealthier countries were supposed to kind of step up and help their poor cousins, and that never happened, and then we lived through Ebola, and still the same lack of action. I think they're just really, really hard problems to solve and we don't have really good answers about global governance and how do you get this global collective action around problems. Well, and a, and a problem on climate or an issue is that this question of how do you assess the international progress is an input to U.S. congressional politics. In conservative politics in the United States, one view is that climate change is a conspiracy that's been cooked up by scientists and Al Gore to profit themselves personally and funnel subsidies to Elon Musk. But the sort of respectable mainstream what the Republican presidential nominee will probably say about it is that, you know, there is some scientific evidence for warming, but that it's a global problem, that China and India are the largest sources of emissions going forward, that Obama's job-killing war on coal isn't going to significantly solve this problem, and so we should basically let emissions go unregulated and maybe count on some moonshot technology. Yeah. And so Democrats who sincerely want the United States to reduce its carbon dioxide levels, they want to say in political terms, no, we've had this landmark agreement with China. We've had this landmark agreement with India, blah, 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 blah. blah. And so then you have a, a coalition of hardcore climate science people who want to say, you know what, there's actually a ton of inadequacies in what China and India have agreed to. And then you also have conservative politicians who don't want the U.S. to tighten up regulations, who also want to make that point that, you know, mm -hmm. really this historic diplomatic breakthrough with China is maybe not all that Barack Obama would like to say that it is. And so, you know, it gets it gets tricky because I think 
I think most of the people on the left of the climate debate certainly would not want to see themselves as providing Marco Rubio with great talking points to use against Obama's power plant regulations. But in sort of practical terms of what is the debate that actually happens in the United States, that's the way it plays. The more you take a positive view of what foreign countries have already agreed to do, the more likely you are to think, okay, it makes sense for the United States to take the next step versus the more you think these foreign countries have made worthless pledges, then it's just like, well, you know, why, why should the United States do anything? I think it's pretty unproven that being positive about these agreements will have any effect on politics. It's not like when China came out with its big agreement last year that suddenly some Republicans were like, oh, well, maybe that changes my mind about this? No, no, no. I mean, obviously nothing changes anyone's mind about anything. No, I'm just saying in terms of like, what is the debate in the United States, right? So what you will see in the U.S. right now in the mainstream politics is politicians who want the U.S. to cut emissions saying that there's been a lot of global progress and politicians who don't want the U.S. to cut emissions poo-pooing the progress that's been made because their argument is that it would be pointless for the U.S. to do more because the global situation isn't going anywhere. Yeah, I think the most correct thing to say is that there has been some progress and there needs to be a lot more. Unfortunately, that's a pretty boring message compared to either of the two options you mentioned. Right. Well, so you wrote a piece for us in the very sort of the early days of, of Vox, and it was about this this target, right? And it seems pretty clear that the world is not going to cut emissions as quickly or by as much as would be needed to actually meet that target. But also nobody wants to change the target because, I mean, A, because they think there's sort of was good scientific reason to make that the target, but also because, you know, the the politics of doing anything in a broad international framework are just really, really tough. And so you don't want to start pulling at the at the Jenga pieces of, of something like that. You could say like 2.5, you could say 3, but who knows what's going to happen once you open that up. Yeah, I think for a long time, people have found it useful to have a single target. It sort of focuses attention. It says, okay, this is how much we need to cut emissions to have a good chance of staying below this. And, you know, at a certain point, they will have to acknowledge that we're not going to hit this. But like you say, at that point, then you start arguing over not how much should we cut, but what should the target be? And different countries will have different views on this. There are already some countries now, mostly these low-lying island countries, that think two degrees is way too high and should be 1.5 degrees. And that takes up a lot of time in these talks. So you can imagine if you just open this up for debate, you'd get much more. It would be bogged down in this single number. And I think that's why they're unwilling to and but so to get it. To get a, a little weedsy here, what do people need to take away from this? Because I think to some people who don't necessarily pay a ton of attention to the details, but who do take climate change seriously, this 2% idea is sort of... Two degrees. Two degrees. Two degrees is very um, firmly lodged in our heads as, oh, this is the target. And so is it the case that if you get 2.2 degrees, is that a bajillion times worse than two? Or is it more like a normal issue where a little bit worse is a little bit worse? Yeah, I think that's, and that's what I wrote last year. It doesn't make sense to think of two degrees as this cliff 
where if you go a little past it, it's disaster. And if you stay under it, everything's fine. The difference between 1.9 degrees warming and 2.1 degrees warming probably isn't a ton. A lot of it is thinking about as you go further and further past this, risks go up dramatically. And we don't know at what point different things happen. Like we don't know at what point you irreversibly lose most of the West Antarctic ice sheet, setting the stage for large temperature increases. We don't really know at what temperature level we start seeing a lot of different effects that lead to widespread crop failures. So there are just a lot of these things that we don't know. And the idea was always, well, let's stay below two because that's pretty much what we've experienced since we've had farming, agriculture, human civilization. And let's not find out what those different points are. It doesn't seem like a good idea to figure out what exactly the temperature that the West Antarctic ice sheet collapses is and then aim for standing like 0.1 degrees below that. But it's not the case that like three is just as bad as nine. And so if you yeah. can't hit two, then then who cares? Yeah. So even if you go past two, it still makes sense to try to reduce emissions and avoid as much warming as you can. Three is better than four. Four is better than five. Because the idea is that there's sort of tipping. There are many tipping points out there, not one. There's like a point at which certain ice sheets will collapse and certain amounts of ocean rise happen. There's tipping points at which certain kinds of crops will fail. But it's not like a single planetary drop-dead number. Yeah, and even beyond tipping points, I mean, it makes a big difference if sea levels rise, you know, at three feet per century versus six feet per century. Just in terms of how cities can plan for that, how you can cope with it, that makes a huge difference. So going up and making faster sea level rise is just a much bigger problem. And it it's not really linear. It gets, I wouldn't say exponentially, but, you know, it's more than linear uh, over time. The right. But it, but it is, but it is a, it is a sort of a, a, a scalar question where like more is more and less yes. is less. And there's no, so, so it does make a certain amount of sense to say that, look, some progress is good. Yes. That it's not like, we're not going to make the target, so let's let's all sort of like sob and, and abandon all hope. Yeah, there's no point where it ever makes sense to just give up and say, well, that's it. Guess we're uh, we're doomed. All right, so not giving up. We will uh, continue uh, to to give you some some words from our sponsors, um, and then going to try to get uh, get Julia to to tell us some more about how how this relates to public health. This week's episode of The Weeds, once again, is sponsored by our friends at Squarespace. Squarespace is is the best, easiest way to sort of build a website that will look good. It's got a sort of a nice, clean, modern-looking, professional design, uh, and it's really easy. You get visual tools. You can drag and drop things. You don't need to know how to build websites or be a computer programmer to make one. But on the other hand, if you do have some limited coding skills, you can sort of drop that in where you want. It's it's a million times easier than the way uh, I made my own website when, when I used to do those things. Now I use Squarespace because it, it creates something that, that looks good and it's it's very simple. You still see out there in the world, you know, a lot of frankly terrible looking websites and you know, you could you can improve it very easily by by shifting to Squarespace. It's very intuitive, very easy to use tools. Uh, if you sign up for a full year, you get a free domain, which is, is very useful if you want a website. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use offer code WEEDS to 
to get 10% off your first purchase. Squarespace, build it beautiful. So, you know, we, we usually do a close out with a research paper of the week, and I, I'm not 100% sure if this qualifies, but I think it does. The, the Lancet is like a, that's like an academic journal, right? Yeah, serious medical journal. See, there you Britain. go. Okay, a serious British medical journal. And so they have uh, coming out, I guess, in coordination with, with this summit. Not It's not a coincidence, right? It came out actually a little it, this summer. Okay, it this summer. It came out before the summit, yep. Okay, so it's research about the idea that climate change is something that public health needs to take seriously. You need to step up, yeah. So in 2009, they came out with the first commission, so the first series of reports ahead of Copenhagen, and then again this year. And the big kind of tagline was, you know, this is the biggest global health problem of the 21st century. So in 2009, they called it the biggest global health challenge. Sorry, this is the biggest (laughs) global health challenge of the 21st century. And then this year, they called it the biggest global health opportunity. And basically, it was this. It's a series of reports. So they decided to get more positive. They decided to get more positive. And it's a series of reports that just talks about all the direct and indirect ways climate change are having an effect on Human health. So I think I think that's important because you know one dimension in which climate change often gets discussed is is economics, and so people will say, well, you know, it might be costly to take this and that change in, in the electricity sphere, and climate change will have this kind of impact on on global economic output. And one thing that it's important to understand about those economic estimates is that. Poor people, by their nature, have little economic value, uh, and that's not to be mean to, to them or, or about them. It's it's like part of what it means to be poor is that the work that you are doing does not generate a lot of measured income. So things that strike down and kill huge numbers of people in developing countries don't measure as having large economic impacts. And so one thing that's always nice about a public health perspective, particularly a global public health perspective on any issue, is that it captures the common sense idea that millions of people dying is a bad thing, even if it's not like a huge GDP game changer. Yeah. At the end of the day, when you read these reports, what they're really arguing for is it's the same thing we argue for in pandemics. It's we need to strengthen our health systems in countries. We need countries that are able to adapt and respond to more droughts, to heat waves, to rising sea levels, to these changing patterns of disease as a result of urbanization and warming. So they're they're essentially arguing for the same thing. Right. Um, so but, so what, but, what kind of... Think, oh. Sorry, no, but I think you, you raise a good point. It puts a human face on it in a way that even the clim- climate scientists have failed to do. Right. So what what kinds of health impacts are, are we talking about? I mean, what's like the the sort of the, the biggest ones on, so on the list? They talk a lot about air pollution, indoor and outdoor air pollution. So air pollution affects us in cities in a different way than it affects people in poor rural areas. So in low-income countries, people um, use, you know, they, they burn uh, biofuel and coal in their homes to cook. Mm-hmm. And you have a lot of particle matter in the air that you then take into your lungs and it increases the risk of different types of respiratory diseases and cardiovascular diseases. In cities, it's emissions, so particles from emissions that affect our health in the same way. The WHO estimated in 2014, 7 million deaths caused by air pollution, which is similar to levels we're, we're looking at with tobacco. So that's to say that's a sort of a public health benefit that would come from reducing fossil fuel burning? Yeah, the wonky kind of term is this idea of co-benefits. So if you design a city that has better the low-carbon economy and you have more 
more bike lanes and you know it was easy easier for people to move around you would also get health benefits with that as well and so the big challenge with this is how do you get health people into this idea of like working across sectors and mm -hmm. taking silos down between health ministries and ministries of energy and the environment how do you get people to kind of and that, that co-benefits idea is something the Obama EPA has relied on a, a fair amount, well, right? They, yeah. I mean, the EPA justified action on carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in 2009 by appealing to public health. And every time they put out a CO2 regulation, you know, they just put out the big one on power plants. And when they do the cost benefit, one of the benefits is reducing particulates and other pollution from coal plants. So the the EPA under the Clean Air Act has this sort of vague mandate to regulate air pollution. Yeah, to regulate pollutants that harm public health and welfare, I think the term is. Right. And we know just, you know, if you speak to people in the Obama administration that they are concerned about the problem of global climate change. And so they take a look at things that are big contributors to carbon dioxide emissions. But in the regulatory process, you can't say, oh, we're doing this because it'll help us meet CO2 emissions, right? There's no law like that. What yeah. you have is the Clean Air Act. And you have a, a rule, right, that new regulations have to go to the Office of Management and Budget where they publish a sort of official justification where it says, okay, we think this is going to cost such and such mm -hmm. amount to industry, and it's going to have such and such kinds of benefits. And the benefits have to be to Americans, right? Not necessarily. It depends on what part of the law you're okay. talking about, and um, it gets complicated. But But the benefits do have to be specific, like, well, we're reducing this amount of emissions, so something good will happen. You you can't list as a benefit, well, we think this is going to help us look better at the next conference and make it easier to get the prime minister of India to sign on to something. No, you, you but want... they do use a, um, they assign a damage that CO2 does, climate change wise, mm -hmm. and that's not all benefits to Americans. I see. So when they do these cost-benefit analysis publications, like for the, the power plant rule was, was uh, the big recent one. Yeah. They list in the benefits lots of things that aren't about CO2 emissions. Yeah. So if under this rule, a lot of coal plants will either have to close or run less often, and coal plants emit a lot of particulate matter that gets in your lungs and causes all sorts of health problems. So they point out, well, if as a result of this rule you shut down this coal plant and replace it with a wind farm or even natural gas that will have all sorts of positive benefits on health. And so that's how it winds up. They, they do this math, and so you'll say, oh, so this is, this is a good rule. The, the benefits exceed the costs, and they are getting that math largely through these kind of co-benefits that, that you were talking about, rather than by directly looking at the carbon dioxide climate feed. Yeah, that's true in the U.S. I would say more generally, broadly, I'm a little skeptical about conflating these two so tightly hmm. because there are lots of places where air pollution is a big problem and you could solve it, but it wouldn't necessarily make climate change better. So a good one is there are lots of people in Africa who they don't have electricity, so they'll burn wood or dung or 
you know, other biomass in their homes for cooking, for heating. And you could solve this by building a giant coal plant and building a lot of power lines to all these homes. And they wouldn't have to burn wood in their homes in giant stoves. And that would probably be better for right, their Right, so health. that would be bad for the people who happen to live right by the coal plant. But most yeah. people don't live right by a coal plant. Right. And now they wouldn't have a fire in their living room. Well, and just if you look at, like, China has really bad air pollution, and they would like to reduce it. But if they cleaned up their air to U.S. levels, which, generally speaking, are pretty good, certainly better than China, they would still be emitting lots of CO2. Even in China, they've been talking about these building these coal gasification plants uh-huh. in the northwest that would take coal, make synthetic natural gas with it, and then transport it to cities. It would be a huge benefit for public health, and it would be a disaster for climate change. So that works public health-wise by basically taking the dirtiest part of it yeah. into a place where not that many people yeah. live, so that you have just as much more actually like garbage going into the air yeah but it's air that's further from like the huge population center right i don't know if that if that's conflating two things like i think the the idea is that ministers of health that people who know have a good sense of the health impact of certain environmental exposures that they work with people who know about whether the trade-off between building some kind of access to energy in rural areas that would like, I think that the whole idea is that people work across sectors. But we, Brad and I had an interesting Slack conversation yesterday about whether this is just public health propaganda, whether it's public health kind of co-opting the climate change message for their, to kind of divert funds into, <laughs> into their own... Um, well, but so, but, but so yeah. you you mentioned this idea of of uh, diseases, right? And and that's certainly something I've I've heard. I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, different plants and animals grow different places and different temperatures, and so if you have uh, like drastic changes in in weather patterns, right? I mean, that could itself have have negative impacts on people. Is that the the sort of the co opting that you're talking about? I think so. This is Brad's. Brad was like, <laughs> I thought it was a really interesting point, but it was saying, you know, like, I think the idea was that for a long time, the global health, public health community didn't really talk a lot about climate change. And all of a sudden, you have these reports, you have the director of the WHO saying, if we want to save humanity, we need to address climate change. And how much is that trying to co-opt the message? I think. So I think there are lots of different ways that climate change will be bad for public health. So heat waves is probably the big one. Like heat waves kill lots of people and global warming will need more heat waves. There's affecting the paths that insects that spread malaria or dengue fever or a bunch of other diseases, you know, that will that could become worse in some areas as a result of global warming. I think that to deal with a lot of these things, it's not clear to me what the health community would have to do differently. And that's that's totally clear from, so when you read these reports, explicitly and implicitly, they're saying strengthen health systems. So do is, what they should have do been what doing they should have been along. doing anyway. It's another kind of argument for resources. But it does, as we said at the beginning, it really does put a human face on it, I think. And at the end of the day, we're all working toward the same goal. So whether you kind of have the backing of health ministers and doctors no. Well, this, I think, is a, is an interesting example of how holding big international meetings 
does change things. And some, I mean, you know, you can argue about whether it changes it for, for good or, or, or for ill, but there have been people saying for years, if not decades, we need to strengthen global public health systems. But it's hard to get a big meeting where all the fancy politicians from all the countries come together and talk about that. But they do have this climate meeting where many, many, many global heads of government are coming to this thing, right? Yeah. If you have any kind of agenda that would be useful to have global cooperation on, it's in your interest to like find a find a way to get some get some climate change hooks on it because you can have Barack Obama and you know Abe and heads of government from China, India, like all kinds of places around, as well as people from developing countries. And so if you can say, oh, hey, guys, like this, this should be part of our story. You know, maybe you can make progress on on sort of your pet issue. Yeah. And right now there's a lot of one of the things they're talking about the climate conference is money for poor countries, climate aid to help them adapt and develop. And some of this will presumably go to things like public health. You know, a country that is likely to suffer a lot of heat waves may need things like cooling centers, other things. Um, so in that sense, it can certainly help to play up the public health angle, particularly if you want money to strengthen. Well, in terms of what you system. said about like working together, Julia, right, it's like. If you can get rich countries to pony up some money to give to poor countries, ideally you would then like to see that money spent on things that are, are most useful yeah. rather than things that are like most obviously climate related. Yeah, I, I think in, in this context, anything that we started our conversation with, how much fat to eat, our diet, how much exercise we should get. But for a lot of people, especially in the poorest countries, your environment is a precondition of any health you're ever going to have. And that's something that I think has been overlooked for a really long time. If you live in an environment that has, I don't know, a certain type of chemical that people who grew up around Chernobyl, that, that I guess is a different kind of different example, but they're going to have exposures to certain or a higher risk for certain illnesses than people who are in a clean environment wouldn't. And But it was interesting researching this. I found that Hippocrates, 2,500 years ago, said if you want to be a real doctor, like if you want to be a serious physician and treat people, you need to ask about the air that they breathe and the environment that they live in. We, Was we, that a profound it, insight or just someone who didn't know anything about disease vectors? Right. No, yeah, probably the air and the spit. What did they call it? The um, Humors? The humors, yeah. Was the Greeks the one with humors? I think so, yeah. That sounds about right. <laughs> that is true. Your doctor never asks you things like, are you biking to work or like are you in a place where you can walk around a lot or are you living next to a coal plant and that can be and, and I think in, especially in the US and North America and developing developed countries generally we probably focus a lot on individual actions and individual health and um, yeah composition of diet and but yeah these things are absolutely detrimental to health even whether you're driving to work or not in the morning and whether you take the stairs at work like they can, over time, have big impacts. No, I do, I do think that's true. You know, when people say, sometimes knock doctors for not giving enough, like, lifestyle advice as opposed to take this pill kind of yeah. thing. But I, but I mean, I've especially seen since, since I've had a, had a baby that, you know, pediatricians do give lifestyle advice about infants, right, and, and what they should do. Um, they, they sort of embrace that aspect of it, but they really don't give environmental advice. I mean, I think in part out of fear that, that no one will be able to do anything about it. But, you know, something I, like, happen to know in my policy wonk universe is about how bad it is for children to... Um, ingest lead, 
You know, they sort of tell you about paint in your house and, and things like that. But something that, that I came across was a, a study of uh, community gardens in, in D.C. And um, a lot of the community gardens in D.C. have a lot of lead in their soil. And so, so that's not great. Jose um, is going nowhere near. No, he, he is not. Um, but another implication of that, I mean, this was just a paper that looked at community gardens, but probably all the dirt has lead in it if the yeah, soil in the community gardens. Right? And so we live right by Logan Circle, which is a park, and it has all this you know, dirt sitting around in it. And I'm wondering, you know, was well, that like full of lead? And so I looked up with DC uh, Parks and Recreation has this whole thing about lead actually, and it's really good. And they're like, you know, don't worry about our DC Parks and Recreation facilities. The areas that are played for for children, they're all like sealed off. So has been replaced. Like it's good. It's good. It's good. Don't worry about it. But there's a huge catch to that, which is like the vast majority of the parks in DC are run by the National Park Service, not by the Department of Parks and Recreation. So I asked the National Park Service, I was like, oh, have you ever tested the lead in the soil in your urban parks in Washington? And they're like, no, we don't do that. But so a pediatrician never tells you, right? Hey, don't let your kid play in the probably toxic dirt that the National Park Service is unwilling to to go test, right? It's all like don't feed your kid low-fat yogurt because yeah. we're this is a nation of individualists. Yeah, you can argue that even the doctors are really undereducated about nutrition as well, but I think the big picture thing around like talking about climate change as a health issue is I think health is moving toward the social determinants of health, so how education is a huge predictor about the the longevity you'll have and the quality of life you'll have. So there are all these other social factors that play into health just as much as what what you put in your body every day. But how do you design a health system and train doctors to kind of account for that more in their interactions with patients? It's a whole different question. So it's all connected. It's all connected. But what everyone wants is more money for their project. Exactly, yeah. And however you can argue for that. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks to, to Brad and, and Julia, and thanks to uh, AC Valdez, our, our producer. Thanks for listening, as always. If, if you are out there, please uh, email us at weeds at box.com. Uh, find us on, on iTunes and, uh, you know, give us, give us many, many stars. Hopefully Ezra and Sarah will uh, at least inform me accurately of their schedule in the future, and we will, um, you know, have one or ideally both of them back on for for some more episodes this has been uh, another episode of, of the weeds of vox's policy podcast on the panoply network thank you all for listening